So with that said, let's pray and let's look at this text together. Gracious Father, we come to you as your people. We ask that you would enlighten our hearts with the hope that we've been called to, to the future where you will restore, renew, reconcile all things in Christ. We pray that you would grant us hope, hope that produces courage, faith, obedience, submission, the willingness to serve you and ultimately um, your glory and the needs of your people and those around us who are lost and they don't know you. So I pray that you bless this time, help us to understand, not just with our minds, but also our hearts, um, this truth presented in this text. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. So I think most of us know at some point in life what it's like to be on the outside looking in or to not be part of the in crowd. crowd. Uh, for me, it starts young or started young, and that is, I don't know how your holiday festivities went, but... Um, we had a kid's table at Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter. You know, a kid's table? In our house, typically it was in a different room, in the kitchen or in the living room, where all the kids were consigned, and of course the adults got to sit at the nice table in the dining room, you know? Kind of teaches us as kids, like, where we sit in the fabric of society. So we were kid's table, exiled, and how cool it was to actually feel valued and respected when they said, Danny, you can come to the adult table which was like last year, you know. <laughs> but it's just kind of like, can't wait to be at the big person's table, you know. Um, feels a little like that at weddings too. You know, there's typically a head table where the bride and the groom sit and maybe the wedding party or maybe the parents or the bride and the groom. And then you know where you rate in things when you're at the table at the back next to the kitchen, right? There's, those are the important people, those are the important guests, the value guests, and of course you're just a plebeian, just out in the back with everybody else, probably a third cousin once removed or something like that. I remember we took a tour of Windsor Castle back in the late 80s, uh, one of the residences of the Queen of England, and we took a tour, and we passed by this enormous hall called, I think it's St. George's Hall, where they have these state dinners like a couple times a year, and it was just magnificent, beautiful, ornate, majestic. And it was beautiful and great and majestic, but I'll tell you, seeing things like that make you feel really small because I know for a fact I will never sit at that table like some kid from Newcastle sitting in uh, St. George's Hall in Windsor Castle. Definitely on the outside looking in. People who are important get called there. That's the world we live in, humanity. The stratification of people, importance, and position. You might be surprised to, say, to learn that that happens in terms of our relationship with God too. Only not on the basis of position or royalty or bloodlines, but because God is holy and we're sinful. So when God wanted to teach the people of Israel about his holiness and teach us about our separation from him, he instructed the people of Israel to construct a tent or a tabernacle, which later became a temple. Now, in one sense, that tabernacle or that temple was a gift because it reminded God's people that I am with you. But it was constructed in such a way to clearly communicate separation. You had this room in the tabernacle and later the, the temple that Solomon built and years later, Herod built, that was called the holy place or the Holy of Holies. 
It was a place no human could go except one person once a year, and that was the high priest, to go in and make atonement. One time a year, that's Yom Kippur. And he did so at risk of his own life because it communicated that that is the holy place where God's presence dwelled, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And then out from there is another room, and there's outer courts, and depending on who you are, there were different lines of access. Only the high priest could go all the way in once a year. Other people had restrictions. So it communicated separation. No one gets to go sit at the table with Almighty God. Well, Jesus came to change that. He came to change that restriction by way of his own death to atone for sin and then change us so that we could be with him. And this particular vision at the end of the Bible gives us a picture of what it looks like. Um, it is a picture that um, I think is both uh, beautiful, glorious, compelling of our relationship with God and where it ends. This is a picture of the future and that was purchased for us by Christ. I'll tell you, at any point when I stopped remembering how far I was from the Lord, that I was separated, that I was a stranger to the commonwealth of Israel and a stranger to the covenants, that makes the death and resurrection of Jesus that much more important to me because of what it did, not just for me, but for all of us who believe. So I want to look at this picture. It focuses on the city of God. Last week, we looked at the new creation, that God is going to renovate the creation that, he, that he, he established at the very beginning, which says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, God is going to renew the physical heavens and the physical earth. That's the place of our future, at a physical earth with physical bodies walking and dancing and speaking and eating. This part of the vision focuses on the city of God. The city of God, and you heard it read, it's rather... Um, Technical in terms of all of these different jewels, and there's gold, and there's dimensions, and there's measurements, and all of these things. And because it's kind of complicated, I want to just draw out four truths that are communicated in this vision that I think are important to keep us keep it simple enough to understand. The first one has to do with what is the city. I told you at the beginning, and those of you who've been exploring with us through the weeks, that this speaks in images and symbols. Well, what does it represent, the city of God, this measured and so forth? You could take it literally, in which there will be 24 karat gold, gold streets, big gates made of solid pearls, um, a city that's enormous. Uh, and if that's your particular persuasion, and you have visions of someday doing a 5K on 24 karat gold roads or doing a victory lap through the golden or the pearly gates or the city of gold, then I don't want to disturb your picture. Like, there are songs that we have sung in the past. It's like, we will dance on the streets that are golden. And that might be precious to you. However, I think it means something even more important. And if you disagree, then hopefully we can still do trunk or treat together. I, <laughs> This is not an essential doctrine, but I think what it points to is even better than just 24 karat gold or pearly gates. Okay, so what does it mean? What, what, is, this, what is this city? First, let me just draw your attention to an intentional contrast that at very least should tell you or teach you that 
like John was not stupid. These visions are contrasting constantly. Back in chapter 17, we were introduced to a woman who is also a city. And here in chapter 21, we're introduced to a woman who's also referred to as a city. And you line them up side by side, and you realize that there's an intentional contrast. So just work with me here, because I want to provide some foundation onto why this is interpreted the way that I'm going to present. So in chapter 17, that's the left side up on the screen, we are introduced to a prostitute. Again, this is a symbol who is also named Babylon. So verse 1 of chapter 17, it reads, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. So you skip forward into chapter 21, which is our text. You find the same basic um, verbiage. It's like verse 9, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls full of the seven last plagues who spoke with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Switch over to the left side again, back to chapter 17, verse 3. It says, And he, the angel, carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Fast forward again to the right side, chapter 21, verse 9. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit, this time not to a wilderness, but a high mountain, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Back to the left side, verse 4, it says, The woman, that is the harlot, uh, was arrayed in purple, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. Switch to the right side, our text. Verse 11, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So both are adorned, both women. Back to the left side, last part. Verse 5, it says, and on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great. Babylon was a city. By the time John wrote this, it no longer existed, which means it is symbolic. And then back to the right side, skip up one, verse 10, it says, and he carried me away to the spirit and showed me uh, to a high mountain and showed me the holy city. Point being, you have two very different women. You have a harlot and you have a bride. Um, Two very different cities, Babylon, New Jerusalem. They're associated with two very different personalities. One, the beast. The other, the lamb. That is Christ. Now, it stands to reason if the first one on the left side is symbolic for uh, human seduction and the temptation of wealth and luxury, the one on the right side, its counterpart, is also symbolic. In other words, we're not talking... 24 carat, carat streets. Now, if that's what you want, maybe you can put in a special request and the Lord will lay some street for you. But I don't think that's entirely what's being communicated. So what is being communicated with this elaborate, this ornate, this adorned city, New Jerusalem? Well, I think the key is to recognize that it's referred to as the bride, the wife of the lamb. It's a bride. Then one principle of interpretation is if it's referred to as a, if you figure out what the bride is in other parts of Revelation, well, then you figure out what it is here. So you back up one chapter, chapter 19, verses 7 and 8, you realize there is a wedding supper of the lamb. Wedding, bride, lamb. And in that text, it's very clear. It's talking about you and me. Talking about the people of God. It's talking about the church. From every generation, every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered together, that is the bride of Christ. 
That's chapter 19. So we come into chapter 20, we read, or 21, we read, this is the bride. The new Jerusalem is the bride. Well, what are we to think? It's talking about a people. And that fits well with other things that the New Testament teaches. Chapter 5 of Ephesians, where Paul instructs husbands to love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's his bride. He died for her to cleanse her, to save her, rescue her, and one day magnify and glorify her. That is the bride of the Lamb. It also stands a reason, this is interesting to me, if you like the details of the text, why this city is so enormous. I mean, the fact that it's symbolic. I, I figured this out. 1,200, excuse me, yeah, 1,200 stadia, right? That's what the Roman measurements were is approximately 1,400 miles. So the city measures 1,400 miles in length, 1,400 miles in width, and height. Okay, let's just think about that for a second. If we were to put that in modern dimensions, the city would run from San Francisco to Amarillo, Texas. And up north, it would go from San Francisco to Calgary, Alberta. That's how big it is, all right, 1,400 miles vertically, but also horizontally, this same length, width, and height, which means the top of the city, if you're going to take it literally, is up where satellites dwell. Now, again, that should just cause us to question, okay, does he mean this to be literal? And if so, that's kind of an unappealing architectural plan. Right, like the God who made a snowflake, the God who made flowers, the God who made all that we see around us and we look and we're just like, this is amazing, all this complexity and unity and wonder, and then he creates a square. <laughs> so, right, so, so again, it's, it's enormous, Amarillo, Texas, Calgary, and up, uh, up into space. That should alert us to something that this is telling us that isn't just literal. It's teaching us that this is a people, I think. And this is again confirmed by another piece of evidence. And if I don't get this right, I don't get the rest of it right. So which is why I spend a little more time. So there's a promise made to one of the churches of Revelation that if they persevere, that is if they overcome or if they conquer, they're going to become a piece of the temple. So verse 12 of chapter 3, to the one who conquers overcomes, endures, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. If you conquer, you get to become a pillar. I'm not going to take that physically. I don't want to be a pillar, neither do you. The point being, you get to be part of Windsor Castle. You get to be, participate in the place where God dwells. That's the point. Again, not to be taken literally, but it points forward to, to who we are, our future. And this accords well, again, and this is the last piece, with how the church is viewed, like in terms of metaphor in the rest of the New Testament. It's often equated to building in structure. So you have Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. It says, Paul talks about the church 
us people drawn from every tribe, tongue, and nation who believe in Jesus, have accepted him as Savior, accepted his sacrifice. Talking about we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And by the way, if you paid attention to what was read in chapter 21 of Revelation, the, 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 the stones, the foundation stones are named after the apostles. Like here. The apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This is structural language in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The point is, this vision of this ornate, adorned, beautiful, glorious, radiant city, he's talking about us, you and me, and every, every saint, every believer who's lived. This is a picture of us. Now, maybe it's just me, but that's way better than 24 karat gold streets. He's describing the bride, us. And how is he describing us and what does it convey? This is the second part, second truth, is the city of God like radiates divine splendor. Radiates divine splendor, New Jerusalem, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And he goes on and on and on, he piles up all of these gemstones, like the best that the earth has to offer by way of beauty. The best he uses to describe us. It's the best he has. And I venture to say he was so overwhelmed by the sight of this, that's all he could use. Analogies, gems, diamonds, gold, to describe God's people. And what's remarkable to me is the way he describes this holy city, the bride of Christ, the church completed, are the same brushstrokes he uses to describe God himself. Chapter 4, we went over chapter 4 a long, long time ago, where John is taken up and he sees a vision of a throne, and he tries to describe what he sees on the throne, and just pause. Verse 3 of chapter 4, and notice he uses the same language. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Look at those two together. He's describing the bride of Christ with the same gemstones. He describes the unapproachable, indescribable glory of God. The picture is overwhelming. And knowing that, I mean, who was the bride before she was a bride? <laughs> Broken people, lost people, selfish people, corrupt people. The fact that he would take people dead in their trespasses and sins, which all of us were, and to make us into a bride that reflects the very glory of the one who created us is beyond comprehension. But that is the size of God's love and grace towards us. That's, again, I'm asking you, is it better than 24 karat gold? Heck yeah, it is. Now, let me just pause to talk about like why this makes a difference 
for me by way of maybe practical application. It reminds us of, of um, what we're doing. Like if, you, if you're a believer, you're a follower of Jesus, and you've spent any time in the New Testament, in the Bible, you know that it's our call to respond to God's love and grace towards us to then serve. To serve Jesus and to serve our fellow man, that is to love our neighbor as ourself. To serve the cause of the gospel, which forms this city, this glorious bride. Like we are called to be a part of the process of the building of this city. So Paul would say to people in Ephesus um, to use their gifts to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, building up the body, building up the city. He uses us graciously to be a part of this process. Listen, we invest in a lot of stuff as human beings, and as Christians. You're investing in an IRA, maybe. You're investing in your home. You're investing in a car. I don't know if that's an investment. But you get it. We invest a lot of time and energy in a lot of different things. And most of what we invest our time and energy and money into will go away. But there's one thing that will remain that you can invest in. People. You can live your life in such a way in your vocation, whether you're a school teacher, a police officer, or a nurse. You can invest your life in such a way that you serve people in service to Jesus. And when given opportunity, you're able to testify to the grace of God of what he's done for us. And when you do those things, or you volunteer for children's ministry, <laughs> guess what? You're building something that's going to materialize before your very eyes in the end, and you're going to go... God used me to, like, put that chrysolite there and put some gold there like he did that through me? Yeah. That's going to last forever. So there should be, like, a motivational factor to, like, I need to make sure I'm investing in something that's going to last beyond my lifetime. The other piece of it, which is motivating for me, is to have a picture of what it will look like in the end. Right? Um, when you serve people, regardless of what your vocation is or if you're in you know, professional ministry like, like I am, I'm a pastor, um, it's messy. Sometimes you take two steps forward and then it feels like one step back. Sometimes it's your own, your own journey that you feel like I just took two steps forward. I feel like I'm growing in faith and then you take another step back. Sometimes it feels like four steps back. Or you're investing in other people. You think, man, this is great. This is growing. This is flourishing. And then... Like, does it make a difference? It's way easier to paint a wall and sit back and go, that looks pretty, pretty awesome. And you completed something. People, there's no completing it. Right? And you're left, and Paul said, I, I wonder if I'm laboring in vain. Is it going to matter? So oftentimes people in ministry feel like, does this matter? Well, here we have a picture of the end, the finished product. We're not going to see this in our lifetime unless Jesus comes back tomorrow, which would be great. But we're probably not going to see it. And it's motivating to have a picture of what it will look like, that God will complete what he started, right? So we, my wife and I renovated a, a, a condominium. We took it from a piece of trash, literally, 
Um, we walked in and there were there's no flooring. It was just straight cement slab foundation. As soon as we opened the door, it smelled like urine and feces. Every door either had a hole in it or torn off the hinges. All the plumbing was clogged. There were holes in the walls and I could see where feces was, was smeared onto the wall. I wouldn't take a cockroach in there. That's how foul it was. And then we started and we spent hours and hours and days and weeks renovating, by the way, renovating something that But there was one thing that, that kept me like going back, kept us going back, and that is we had a picture in our heads of what it was gonna look like. And when it finally got done, it, it, was, it was pretty cool. And that's something that is gonna go up in smoke, like most of our other things we invest in. But here's a picture of the completion, like a motivation, just keep going. Keep laboring, keep serving, keep giving your life to gospel ministry and watch what's going to happen someday when the most spectacular, most stunning, most beautiful thing you've ever seen other than God himself is going to come, become visible. We'll look at each other and go, man, I've said this before. It's like, I see God in you in ways that just can blow you away. The finished product. So the city of God radiates divine splendor. This is us. Graciously, God does this for us through Christ. Third, the city of God will be eternally secure. Eternally secure. You notice, I like how Chris said, the gates are always open, they never shut, which means constant access. And there's lots of them. Like today's gates in Jerusalem, they're just only like seven or eight. This is like 12, always open. But the main point of it is that there's a wall. It had a great, great high wall and 12 gates, and the gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. This is a picture of wall around a city. Of course, to the first century, they would have understood this, and we can, with a little imagination, we can understand this. After all, people are fighting over whether we should build a wall on the southern border. Wherever you stand with that, that's your deal. But the fact of the matter is, it's for, ostensibly, purposes of protection. You had a wall around the city to protect it. It was vulnerable if you didn't have one, which is why Nehemiah, one of the Old Testament guys, had to build a wall around Jerusalem because it was vulnerable to attack. And we still have walls around our houses, not just for heat and cool, but also for protection. We have doors and security doors and locks and deadbolts. You have a lock on your car. Maybe you have an alarm on your house and security cameras. All of this for your own protection, for security. We spend enormous amounts of money on security in our country and the Department of Defense and law enforcement and personal protection of your house because we know we live in an insecure world where things can be destroyed, people can break in, you can be harmed. We live in an insecure world, which is why we feel anxiety, <laughs> or we have fears, threats. And what this wall signifies, this great wall, is that the city of God, the people of God, the bride of Christ, will be secure. No more anxiety, no more fear, no more threats. No more fear of persecution or pain. No more fear of 
seduction or deception, no more fear of death. No more threat. Because it's secure. 100% secure. Every one of us in here wants to feel secure financially. want to feel secure in our marriage. want to feel secure about the future. We invest money in our insurance so that if something happens to our house, we can have it rebuilt. We're never going to question it. The city of God, the people of God will be eternally and wonderfully secure and at peace all the time. And I love even the angels. You have like these angels, these angelic sentinels at the gate saying, no one shall pass here. That's the image. Not a literal wall, but God saying, I will secure you as my bride, glorified, magnified forever. That's, to me, a little bit better than 24-karat gold asphalt. And last and not least, this is the best part, okay? The best truth of all has to do with the measurement of the city itself. It may be architecturally unalluring, but what it means is powerful. So you have this, again, I'm going to actually read the verse, verse 16. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 1,200 stadia, again translated into about 1,400 miles. Its length and width and height are equal, again. San Francisco, Amarillo, Texas, Calgary, Alberta, and then up, over 7 million feet in elevation, 1,400 miles. So what's, what's up with this, man? Like I said, God could do way better architecturally than this. So what's he trying to teach us through this? Square, but huge square. I started this message talking about a little room that no one could go, called the Holy of Holies, the place where God chose to make his presence dwell, a place the humans were separated from, couldn't go in, couldn't even get close, depending on who you were. If you're a Gentile like me, man, you were way out there. Jewish people had a little more access, and the priests had even more access. Me? Way out there. You? unless you're Jewish, way out there. You understand? Well, when God told Moses to make that little room, and then later Solomon was given plans for that little room in a physical temple, this is how he created it. Okay? Read this with me. Let's read it slow, especially verse 20. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high, and he overlaid it with pure gold. A little tiny box. Perfect cube. It's the only perfect cube in the Bible other than Revelation chapter 21. So you have, I think, this is what's behind this massive block cube city. 
But it's not 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits, which only one person could go in once a year. Now it's 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles, and guess what? Everybody's in it! All of us. It's like there's no more separation between Gentile and God. It's like, we're in the room! <laughs> and it's a it's huge room. And the, the point isn't the miles. I think if you compare very carefully the visions, you realize that the fullness of God's presence dwells in the entire cosmos, the entire new creation, and we stay connected to him 100% of the time, all the time, everywhere where you, you go, no matter what you're doing, you are in the presence of God. Right now we have seasons where we feel like a deer panting for water. You feel at times like, God, how, how long will you hide your face from me? That's because there is still separation physically. But when this happens... No matter where you go or what you're doing, the light of God's presence will be with you 100% of the time. You won't question whether he's with you. You will experience him with you all the time. You won't have to open your Bible to hear him speak to you. Because he will be with you. That doesn't mean, I, I don't know exactly what that means about the Bible, but the fact of the matter is, you know, this is how he speaks now, but then we'll be face to face. I, I don't know that I'll need to hear him through a book. Because we'll see him face to face. That is the picture of, of this future is that the best part is that God inhabits his people fully, completely, all the time, 100%. As the waters cover the sea, so the glory of the Lord will shine everywhere we go. And this is confirmed by the last part of the, of the, of the paragraph, end of the chapter. And I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. That's the whole point. And the city has no need of sun or moon. And notice it says has no need of. doesn't mean they don't exist. It just means there's something more beautiful and more bright that illuminates God's people everywhere they go. And that is the glory of God gives light. And its lamp is the Lamb. You know, the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And we get tastes in this life. You know, you go out on a clear night, on a new moon where there's no light, and you see the panoply of stars over, and you're just like, God, you're awesome. And you know it, and you feel it. Or you meditate on a piece of scripture like, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. You're like, God, you're so good. Well, that's a taste. Of what's to come. 100% all the time connected to God as the bride of the Lamb. That's, church, that's our future. Like, this is a picture of us. This is a picture of the church glorified that will be secure and will experience the Holy of Holies all the time, wherever we go, whatever we do. So someday, we are going to sit at a table. We're not going to sit at the, kid, uh, the kid's table, right? We're not, we're not going to be excluded from St. George's Hall. We are going to be included on, in the marriage supper of the Lamb, in which he will be with us, celebrating with us forever and ever. And that's really what this table that we're about to partake of is, is about.
is to remember the death of Jesus. His body is symbolized by the, by the bread and his blood, the cup. And we come to the table to remember who we are, who we will one day be, and that we will drink with him in the kingdom when this day arrives. So as you come this morning, and the, the, only, the only ones who shouldn't come to the table are those who don't know the Lord. This is a table that's for those who have made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Even if you don't attend here and you've made a profession that you trust in Christ, you're welcome to come to the table of of, of the Lord and participate. But remember, like this is, this is how we get to the vision of chapter 21 of the Bride of Christ. So there is both gluten-free, also gluten. You just need to ask for it. Um, as I pray, if I could have those who are serving communion come up, and then as you feel led, come on up. We actually have four different lines this time. So um, last time it was a bit of a traffic jam. Um, this time we have four different people. So if You'll figure it out. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for who you are. We thank you for your grace and your love and your mercy towards us. We just ask that you compel us with the hope of who we are, who we will one day be, and everything that we have in Christ. Meet with us through bread and cup as we celebrate what you did and what we hope for in Christ's name. Amen.